My guests today are Sandra Levinson, Executive Director of the Center for Cuban Studies, which is a nonprofit 501c3 founded in 1972 by a group of scholars, artists, and other professionals dedicated to providing information about contemporary Cuba, contributing to the normalization of relations between Cuba and the United States, including the end of the U.S. embargo against Cuba, which has been in place for over 60 years. And also joining us is Jose Oro, a Cuban immigrant to the United States, a geologist who came to the U.S. decades ago, in actually 1991, and who is now a community organizer living in Connecticut. So I wanted to start this uh, update on Cuba by saying that I was there in February of 2020, and it was clear at that time that the situation was pretty difficult in terms of the availability of food, energy, and all the necessities of life. But much has transpired since then. And Cuba has endured three years of the pandemic. Joe Biden won the presidency and the embargo continues. Well, what can you tell us about the current situation in Cuba after two plus years of the Biden administration? when one might have hoped that some changes would have occurred in U.S.-Cuba relations. But why don't we start with Sam? Can you give us any information about that you've heard about the current situation in Cuba? Well, first of all, I haven't been there since last May, so it's been a year. Obviously, we keep in touch with our friends and colleagues in Cuba. And as you know, the situation is terrible because what you saw in 2020, just before the pandemic came to Cuba, was nothing compared to what they've gone through since then. I mean, the shortages of foods, of energy, the explosion in this Hotel Santiago, the explosion in Matanzas, you know, all of this has led to so many shortages in terms of fuel, in terms of energy, products, everything, you know, and the food situation is very, very bad. And of course, everything's been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, because not only did the Cubans get their grain from Ukraine and Russia, but also the whole situation, international credit was usually being done through Russia. And that has been stopped. And so, you know, the the few things that we do allow the Cubans to import from the United States, that is basically drugs and food. Cuba is the only country that has to pay up front before a ship even leaves the United States. And that's, you know, money is one thing that the Cubans certainly don't have, thanks to our long running embargo. So, you know, whatever you want to say about mismanagement or problems within Cuba, the worst problem, and I'm sure Jose would agree, has been this long running embargo. I mean, it's just crazy. And what has happened in the last year really is an enormous increase in the number of people who want to leave and are leaving. We talk a lot about how we don't want immigrants at the border, and yet yet we've always given the Cubans a special pass, uh, even now with the current parole program, which is intended for Cubans, Haitians, Venezuelans, and Nicaraguans. It seems it would be much easier to help the countries. And especially in Cuba, it's an easy solution. End the embargo. Right. You know, right. if they ended the embargo, at least we could somehow perhaps prove to the United States government that the problems are basically in the embargo and its very existence and not in internal mismanagement. 
And if it is internal mismanagement, well, the United States can prove that too. But we're totally unwilling to even try. Biden has done nothing to reverse the terrible, I think it was 247 executive orders by Trump to make things worse. The only thing he's done is make the commercial airlines a little happier by saying that they could fly not only to Havana, but also to other Cuban cities, such as Cienfuegos, Santiago, and Olguin. But that's more of a way of helping Cuban exiles reach their own families who live outside of Havana more easily. So, I mean, the problem is so deep and has gone on for so many years that even though it's easy to blame the Cuban government, even by the Cubans themselves, I mean, who else are they going to blame? They can't go in the streets and protest against the United States. That would be meaningless. So, I mean, it's a terrible situation. And I think we should, you know, as a country, we should be a little more generous to a neighbor that has not has certainly not been a terrorist nation, as we now call it. Well, that's a great update, even though it's a very bleak picture that you've given us there. But let's get uh, Jose's uh, perspective on this. Jose, you want to add anything to what Sandra said? Sure. I really agree 100% with what uh, Sandra said. But I want to add uh, something. Many people believe that this uh, bad situation created during a Trump administration was going to be reversed by the, his defeat by a Democratic candidate that, by the way, was the vice president of Obama when Obama did some limited but good steps toward the to dilute the the embargo, etc. The one of the worst part of uh, that is that now many people in Cuba doesn't doesn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. The the vice president of Obama, the Democratic Party, a person who the Cuban American from Dade County called communist. He is essentially in Kahoot with them. Exactly. Do you know, one of the gravest things that happened in Cuba today is not only the cumulative effect of the, of the embargo, that is, is just unbelievable. The amount of shortage and limitation that the people have there is just regrettable to the extreme that a great country like our country is doing that. But it's also that the people don't believe that it will change because a candidate supposedly opposed to Trump and fascism, a, a candidate who saw the people attacking Capitol Hill January 6th, the fascist attacking a Capitol Hill, you know, he had been essentially doing nothing against all of this disaster, and it had created a really, a, how to say, disheartening situation with the people. It's not only the shortage, the people in Cuba had accustomed to challenge a shortage and difficulties, etc. But what they were not prepared is to see that the Democratic Party, the candidate who was the, the vice president of Barack Obama, is avoiding any responsibility with that. But also, Jose, you know what you said at the beginning, that people blame Trump. You can't blame Trump for continuing a policy that's been essentially the same, with the exception of Jimmy Carter, 
for all of these six some years, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. gone on for so long. It's such a, a given part of both Democratic and Republican policies that nobody has made any kind of move. I mean, Jimmy yeah. Carter only one who lifted the travel ban. And why hasn't Obama said anything? You know, I was very, very, very disappointed when I read Obama's huge book on his presidency. Look in the index. Cuba is not even mentioned. He doesn't even talk about that one important step he made to open diplomatic relations. It's almost as though well, I did it, but I don't really want to talk about it. I'm not really proud of it, or I don't want to cause any problems for the Democratic Party by mentioning it. And that's horrible. I mean, he should have been talking to Biden from the minute Biden was elected about finishing what he started with Cuba. Absolutely. Yeah, the situation, it is so disappointing to me as a progressive to witness what Biden has done, especially this issue of Cuba being designated a state sponsor of terror, which I think that was something that Trump did. And that the fact that Biden has not immediately rescinded that designation and taken Cuba off that list. I don't know if Jose, if you have any comment on the effect of being included on that list of state sponsors of terror, how that affects Cuba's ability to have commercial interactions with other countries. That is not only incorrect, it is not only bad, it is just farcical. To include Cuba in that list is farcical. Cuba had been a country helping the peace in Colombia dramatically, trying to put together, to negotiate a war that is more than a half a century going on in Colombia, putting the people to negotiate, helping every possible way for peace and collaboration and, you know, a medical assistance. And, you know, to include it in that list, and now the, the bill that is in the House of Representatives, H.R. 314, sponsored by Maria Vida Salazar, is just absolutely unbelievable. They say that Cuba cannot be taken out of the list by the president without the authorization of the Congress. And second, that they are a group of conditions that Cuba need to, to accomplish before it's taken out of the list of terrorist countries, including multipartidism, free elections, a group of things that are absolutely not only false, but you related with terrorism in any we, possible way. We don't have the right to interfere in the internal affairs of Cuba. Uh, absolutely. Cuba has only been the victim of terrorism. You know, <laughs> and Sandra and Richard, can you imagine that we say to the UK that uh, if they don't end with a monarchism, if they don't depose Charles III and create a republic, we are going to consider them a terrorist country, because it is absurd in the 21st century to have a king. It's irrational. For Cuba, it's very difficult to charter a chip. You can remember that even, even China didn't want to buck that whole idea of shipping, for example, rice to Cuba and then not being able to ship anything in the same ship to the United States when normally they could make the route to Cuba. It's very heavy at the same time. 
Let me mention to you something, Richard. I am 70 years old. I will be 71 in September. What I wanted to, to say, uh, people, is that 83% of the Cuban population was not born the day that embargo started. 8.3 of each 10 Cubans is paying for something that occurred, good or bad, just when they were not born yet. If we take people like me that were less than 10 years old, this number goes to 92%. One of the things that I noticed when I was in Havana in February 2020, I spoke to some young people and it was clear to me immediately that you know, they had no direct experience of how the embargo came to, to be put in place. And so it just it was sort of like the de facto reality that they lived under. And they didn't really have a sense of the historical perspective on that. And it, also they were disconnected from the struggle against Batista and the oppression of the pre-revolution Cuba. They didn't have a direct connection to that. So there is this sense, I think, in Cuba now of, as you say, up to 90% of the population who, who doesn't have that sense of the historical connections that are causing the problems that are occurring today. One thing that you have in Cuba that um, you certainly don't have here right now is an effort to teach that history, at least in the schools, you know, to talk about slavery in Cuba that happened. I'm just saying that that in Cuba, the imperative to teach history of Cuba with all of its negatives is a very important part of teacher training and what goes on in classrooms now. And it's just so interesting to see how the, there's a movement to ensure that we don't talk about slavery in the United States, that we don't talk about the kinds of historical research young people are doing now and the importance of talking about taking of their lands, etc., slavery in the United States, what we've done in the past. And I think it's terribly important that both countries know what they have gone through in the past. You were talking about young people in Cuba not really being connected to the struggles and all they see, some reason the United States hates Cuba. <laughs> And it's a very difficult situation for young people in Cuba now. I want to ask uh, Jose and maybe Sandra can jump in here too about the movement in the United States to end the embargo. I know, Jose, you're doing a lot of work to inform people in your community about this issue to try to make change happen in U.S. foreign policy toward Cuba. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing here in Connecticut and maybe even talk a little bit about the meeting it was supposed to happen with Cuban diplomats in uh, Hartford and other places in Connecticut, uh, I guess a week or so ago, that fell through because of draconian intervention of the U.S. government. What happened, Richard? Please, please, Sandra, please. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, as far as I know, well, actually, let's let Jose tell us that there was a meeting that was set up with the uh, delegation, Cuban delegation for, to the United Nations. It was supposed to occur in Connecticut. And there are restrictions on travel on, on those diplomats. They, I don't even think they're allowed to leave Manhattan to go anywhere. But there was an exception that was supposed to be made to allow them to come to Connecticut. There were supposed to be meetings with Connecticut political people in Hartford. Jose, why don't you take it from there and tell us what happened? 
Sure, sure. We obtained the, the invitations uh, sent by the state assembly, uh, signed by a two representative and also by another letter from the speaker of the chamber, inviting them to come to Connecticut. We have a organized meeting with universities, essentially Wesleyan University, Quinnipiac, uh, Yale, uh, Central, Yukon. We have um, a group of uh, important meetings with artistic people like the Festival of Art and Idea, etc. The, the State Department, a night before, just 6 p.m., a Thursday, uh, they were supposed to come Friday and Saturday. The night before Thursday, they informed that they were not authorized to do that trip without explaining why, and we needed to cancel everything. Then we went to the to the legislative office building in Hartford, in Hartford, and we have the meeting with the without the Cuban diplomats. They were attending uh, the Cuban vice chancellor, Geraldo Peñarver, the Cuban representative and president this year of the non-aligned uh, movement that now is called 77 Plus China Group, the representative of Cuba to the international organization like UNESCO, UNICEF, etc. Means a, a very substantial meetings, group, level of organization, big logistics that we put in place. And they refused uh, to give the authorization without any explanation. Then we went to Hartford, to the state assembly, and we explained what happened. And it was a full rejection uh, in the part of the state assembly. And we are sending now letters to the state department and to the federal delegation of Connecticut to protest for this crude intervention of the State Department in the in something that is a full responsibility of the State of Connecticut. And, and we will continue doing this uh, kind of work. Like uh, Richard, like you have been extremely supportive we here in your program, you know, to the justice, to sing. Also, we worked with a Spanish radio station and media, and we published articles explaining what happened, that the State Department a few hours before the trip, decided not to authorize it without any kind of uh, explanation. Jose, can you send me whatever uh, letter of protest you've written so that I can send it to all of our members so that we can... Absolutely. Absolutely, Sandra. Thank you very much for that. I will send that, uh, I will send that tonight to you. That was a really bad thing showing. By the way, Let's be clear, Connecticut is a full Democrat state. The governor is Democrat. The five representatives, the two senators, you know, with a strong democratic basis, a democratic government is refusing to visit a state like, uh, like that. It is just to please Dade County and the Republicans that never, ever, under any condition, will support Democratic Party. That is just uh, insanity. Uh, but that happened. And yes, thank you very much. I will send to you the going on and what is uh, being written, etc. I think that's a very, very, very bad step to have taken. And must have been a horrible welcome for Gerardo, who just became the ambassador. <laughs> He's a very nice uh, gentleman. 
He is at the same time uh, the first deputy minister of foreign affairs. He's a person with a long experience. He was Cuban ambassador in Germany, Cuban yeah. ambassador in Russia. Yeah, yeah, this is, that is a very important thing. Richard uh, went all the way to, to Middletown. We have a, something there in which uh, Richard was going to interview the people. You know, it, it was just pure harassment. I, what, I, was, what was the date of that? What was the exact date? Oh, the, the date was, um, I will say to you, the last 28 and 29 of April. Okay. Uh, and uh, do you know the, the danger was perceived collaboration with famous university, collaboration with a famous uh, community health non-profit organizations, a group of actions that were, you know, tending to establish a better relation between two people. In Cuba, nobody say that anything wrong about American people. In, in Cuba, American people is from Dr. Salk and the vaccine against polio, or Aaron Copland, is a country of scientists, artists, benefactors. We love the, the American people, but just the a group of interest, 1% of the American population is in, in top of it, that is just a small episode of the epic race some people have to end the mankind as soon as possible. Because it's, they are a group of crazy people that want to end the mankind. That's it. You know, the goal of the Center for Cuban Studies is very simple. You know, we're trying to get people in the United States to think of Cuba as one other country not as some kind of monster. And we're trying to do that in the only way we know how, you know, by bringing in part the culture of Cuba so people can see how magnificent is that culture, the music, the art, the dance. And secondly, to make sure that as many people as possible are able to travel there. You know, it's not, there are many, many, many people in this country who still think that you can't travel to Cuba. You have always been able to travel to Cuba within certain limits. But people have, the general population has the idea that you can't travel to Cuba. It's not true. And even Trump could not change that. He could change how you get there. <laughs> you can't fly <laughs> cities. But he couldn't change the fact that there are still 13 categories under which you can travel freely to Cuba. So one thing Please. you can't is a tourist lying on the beach. But you can go for 13 other reasons, one of which is support for the Cuban people. And just the fact of traveling there is support for the Cuban people. You can go there to bring back information. You can go there to bring back art, magazines, books, movies. You can go there to talk to people about important issues. You can go conferences. You know, there are many, many reasons that you can go to Cuba. Any fit into one of those 13 categories. So I just want to urge your listeners to please try to travel to Cuba. That's one of the things that we've been doing, for example, nonstop since 1973. Our first trip was 1973 when you had to travel through a third country. But we've always been able to travel. So when 
Jimmy Carter lifted the travel ban during his four-year administration, he lifted it so that people could go without a reason. You know, it wasn't that you suddenly could travel. It's that you could travel without any reason. You could go as a tourist, you could sit on the beach, you could do nothing. You could sit around a bar and drink mojitos all day. We are organizing a group of 30 people from Connecticut. All of these uh, representative people of the assembly, intellectuals, artists, etc. By the end of June, in the last week of June, we are sending 30 people from Connecticut to meet Cuba. That's great. Well, I want to thank my guests, Sandra Levinson, executive director of the Center for Cuban Studies, and Jose Oro, who is a community activist, a geologist by profession, who now lives in Wallingford, Connecticut. I want to thank you both for joining us here today on Mic Check for this uh, very interesting conversation. Uh, Sandra, why don't you give your uh, contact information, your website, and other ways people can get in touch. Behind you, there's an amazing exhibition of Cuban and art and other art from the different parts of the Caribbean. Tell us about how people can connect with you and maybe Jose, if you have information, contact information, you could provide that as well. Well, first of all, our website is centerforcubanstudies.org. Very easy to remember. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. And we're always available at the center. We're open to the public Tuesday through Saturday, 12 to 6. We always have beautiful art exhibitions. And we're always organizing trips to Cuba. Just contact us, <laughs> please. Okay, just to clarify, so if people want are considering it, uh, traveling to Cuba, they can get information and logistics from your center. Yes, absolutely. And Jose, any information you want to give us about how people can get in touch with the groups in Connecticut who are organizing against your embargo? They can go um, to Facebook a page, call it NIMO, a N-E-M-O, No Embargo Cuba Movement. Uh, and my personal uh, phone is um, area code 203-804-7573. And the, the organization on the scene of the trip, of the trips in the future, we will have every quarter a trip to Cuba. We are going to do it through, through Sandra because she has a lot of experience and also in order to work together and to to make this thing practical and possible. Thank you, Jose. Thank you. A great pleasure. Great that you could be here uh, on this show. It's wonderful that you both could join us. Once again, Sandra Levinson and Jose Oro, thank you so much for being with us today on Mic Check.